What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and pop culture podcast. I am, as always, very excited to bring you another episode of the Midnight Myth. Today we're doing something that does feel, we say this a lot, does feel long overdue. It's been a long time since we've talked about the great Gotham Night of Darkness the Cape Crusader, the one, the only, the Batman. Yeah. We are going back to Batman for a few reasons. So let me give you the whys before we jump into this episode. One, by the time this episode is up, the Joker will be out. Um, We haven't seen it yet. It's not currently out. And uh, there's a lot of anticipation, but it felt like Batman is relevant vis-a-vis this movie centered around the the crown prince of crime, the Joker. And there's a lot of discussion happening out there. Two, it's October. It's fall. It feels a little Halloween-y. It feels a little darker, a little fall, a little gothic-y, which really got me in a Batman kind of mood. So we have the Joker coming out, Batman being as relevant because Batman's always relevant. Then we have it now being fall 2019, And it really made me want to go back and revisit Batman. We did a Batman episode way, 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 way back. We talked a lot about Batman, the character in general. We talked specifically about the Frank Miller comic, The Dark Knight Returns. But we wanted to do a Batman cinema-themed podcast. And it was really easy for us to pick which movie to filter this podcast through. That's the 1989 OG Batman, the Tim Burton Batman. Yeah, this is an exciting uh, way to jump into Batman for the first time in a while because, uh, yeah, it's the OG. This is, for many people, the first time they saw Batman on screen. And it's an iconic portrayal by Michael Keaton, who, uh, when asked in interviews if he was intimidated by the work that Christian Bale or Ben Affleck were doing uh, to sort of take this role from him, he said, no, I'm not. You want to know why? Because I am Batman. And he is Batman. So it's got that iconic portrayal by Michael Keaton. It's also a depiction of uh, one of the greatest and most fascinating rivalries in all of pop culture history, Uh, that's Batman and the Joker. The Joker is brought to life with such incredible power and iconoclasm uh, by Jack Nicholson. And there is so much 
to mine from this movie from 1989. Uh, I'm really excited to revisit it with the Midnight Myth critical lens and see what we can learn from it. Yeah, when we did our last Batman episode, we were trying to tackle thematically why is Batman so powerful? Why is Batman so popular? Why is Batman the number one superhero year after year? And for me and for my life, it comes down to this movie. In 1989, it came out. I was a boy. I saw it. I loved it. When it came out in VHS, we rented it. When my dad decided to get us a Laserdisc player, because that was a thing, depending on how old you are, you may not know what that means, but it was a gigantic CD that played the movie. We the, One of the first movies we got was Batman. It also spawned the animated series, Batman the Animated Series, which I also watched near to like a cult ritual for, I watched that series from when it first came out to when I was in high school, when they stopped syndicating the reruns, that's how much I watched it. And that was directly informed by the Tim Burton's Batman. Right. And people take it for granted that mainstream cinema features Hollywood's toppest, youngest, freshest, brightest talent in the superhero genre. In 1989, this was not so. The only superhero movies that had done any bit of commercial success were the Superman movies, and it had been a long time since they were actually both critically and commercially successful. That was, in fact, a floundering uh, franchise, and I'm talking specifically about the Christopher Reeve Superman series, and there's, I think, four or five movies. I lost count. This movie came out... And it was a bombshell. At a paltry $50 million budget, it grossed almost half a billion dollars worldwide. It was a phenomenon that jump-started the Batman that we know today. And I can't wait to talk about, A, all things Tim Burton's Batman, B, what this meant for Batman, C, what this means for the Joker, and obviously what it means for history, mythology, and philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive too deep into this, I know there's a lot of Midnight Myth news happening. Laurel, what's going on? How can people reach us? Let people know what we're doing. If you want to stay on top of updates, make sure you follow us on social media, especially on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for blogs, extra content. You can sign up for our email list. Uh, By the time this episode is published, there should already be a new blog up on the website as a companion piece for last week's episode on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So if you want to dig deep and get nerdy, please check it out, www.midnightmyth.com. On our website, you'll also find a link to our merch store where you can buy tees, totes, phone cases, whatever you need. We have onesies for your kids so you can show off how much you love the Midnight Myth and the Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower side podcast with Derek and Steve. Um, And then also on the website, there's a link to our Patreon. So if you love the Midnight Myth podcast and you want to help us keep making uh, the work that we're making and get better and have more resources, uh, Patreon is a a great way to support us. So you can chip in for as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month, whatever you feel comfortable giving, and you'll get extra perks from that, whether that's a shout out on the pod, discounts on merch, or free bonus episodes. So uh, definitely consider supporting us on Patreon, buy some merch, sign up for updates, follow us on social media. Um, Also in the next couple of weeks, 
Stay tuned because we are partnering with some friends of the podcast, uh, the Pop Venture family, who have a YouTube channel where they collect and unbox uh, Funko Pop figurines. And we are going to partner with them for the release of the new Star Wars movie to do a pop giveaway. So definitely stay tuned to The Midnight Myth. Subscribe to the Pop Venture family. There's a link in the show notes to subscribe to their YouTube channel. And you'll have more details on the way for how to enter that giveaway. Word to the bird. Yeah. Or should I say bat? Word to the bat. Let's jump in. Let us talk all things 1989 Batman. So before we begin, should we do the briefest of brief recaps? You are a champion at that, so I think we should. All right. So this movie starts off in Gotham City with a family that is lost in Gotham. They get mugged and the muggers are hanging out, you know, dialing up the credit cards, counting the cash, telling the story of another criminal mugger who fell off of a rooftop, hit the the cement, and there was no blood in the body. They're discussing that this may or may not have been done by the bat. In this, we see Batman come. He beats them up. He holds one of the, the, in particular, the one criminal who doubted the existence of the Batman over the building in the famous line, what are you? And he says, I'm Batman. We then get introduced uh, to a few other side characters. Mainly, we see Gotham City in a crisis of criminality. There's so much crime and corruption that the city is crumbling from within, and a new reformer mayor and a new reformer district attorney named Harvey Dent have been voted into office, and they're promising to root out the heart of that corruption boss Carl Grissom, whose number two lieutenant is Jack Napier. Jack Napier also happens to be having an affair with boss Carl Grissom's girlfriend behind his back. We get introduced to two journalists, one by the name of Vicki Vale, who is a photojournalist, following up on a story written by Alexander Knox, who's trying to trace these stories of the Batman. All of this culminates when a party at Bruce Wayne's Manor gets interrupted when we find out that Jack Napier, second in command to boss Carl Grissom, is cleaning out access chemicals, presumably a front for mob activity. Since Jack Napier is sleeping with boss Carl Grissom's wife, he sets up Jack Napier with Lieutenant Eggart to go find Jack Napier and use the police to kill him. This is where Bruce Wayne, the the philanthropist holding this billionaire gala to save the 200-year anniversary foundation and festival of Gotham City, who is also Batman, by the way. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. He's Batman. Bruce Wayne is Batman? Yes, This is where he goes to access chemicals and accidentally drops Jack Napier into a vat of chemicals, turning him into the Joker. This is where all chaos happens. The Joker quickly supplants boss Carl Grissom and any rival gangsters to become the king gangster of Gotham City. And he goes on a mass campaign to poison as many Gothamites as many different ways as he can. One is that he poisons all of their cosmetic products, causing people to laugh themselves to death till they have a Joker smile permanently embedded on their face. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne and Vicki Vale form a on-again, off-again, hot-and-cold romantic relationship where Bruce is trying to keep her at a distance because he's afraid of being close to someone. We also learn that Bruce Wayne was... What I'm party. Bruce Wayne witnessed his parents' murder as a child, and this is the impetus and motivation for him becoming Batman. 
All of this culminates in the the 200-year anniversary festival being canceled. Joker decided he's going to bribe the people of Gotham by dropping $200 million of cash. In reality, he uses poison balloons to kill as many Gothamites as he can. Batman, Joker, Vicky Vale, they all collide in a colossal battle that takes place at the top of Gotham Tower. Joker falls to his death. Batman and Vicky Vale are triumphant in the end. That was amazing. I feel like you deserve a slow clap for all of the detail that you got in there and how much of that you captured and the whole, I could see it in my mind. That was awesome. Thank you for that recap. And there's a lot of other fun stuff that happens. One of my favorite scenes is in a museum where the Joker kills everybody in the museum to fake a date with Vicky Vale. They destroy all of the artwork. It's just fantastic. Except for, and I have to point this out, there's one painting that the Joker will not allow to be destroyed and that painting is called Figure with Meat by Francis Bacon. And it's a depiction of Pope Innocent II in a slaughterhouse. It's this like gross, grotesque, expressionistic, morbid painting that the Joker is like, you know what? I kind of like I that one. I like that. Where would we like to start in analysis? Well, let me ask you, you a question here. Yeah. This movie came out in 1989. The genre of the superhero... I would say probably as we know it today started there, but it's evolved. It's changed. We've seen the Marvel cinematic universe. We've seen the Christopher Nolan Batmans, all of these great, uh, both commercially successful. We've seen Oscar winning Joker performances from Heath Ledger. I just want to ask you, does this movie hold up? I'm going to say I was surprised at how well this movie held up for me. And I say this as somebody who definitely saw it as a little kid, but doesn't remember much of it. So I don't have a whole lot of nostalgia for this movie in particular. I don't have a lot of uh, biases toward it or feelings of like attachment to anything. And I watched it pretty clean uh, this watch. I watched it almost as though it were the first time. And I was like, this is good. This is a really good Batman movie. Um, I, I felt like there were some things that if the movie were made today would have been done differently. Part of that is the depiction of Vicki Vale. I think she might've been, uh, just a little bit less of a damsel in distress if the movie were made again today, but I was really, uh, impressed with how well the movie held up. Um, I was a big Tim Burton fan as a teenager, as I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast were, I fell in love with the nightmare before Christmas and the sort of neo Gothic teenage, hot topic style that he sort of gave birth to. And I think it marries so perfectly to Gotham. I think he establishes such a, a, a living, breathing character in the city of Gotham. His influences are clear in like Fritz Lang's Metropolis, German Expressionism, film noir. Uh, it all feels so uh, alive and yet so original and so right for Batman that like... It, I know that great Batman movies have come out since this. I know that I deeply love the Nolan adaptations, but this just feels like peak Batman to me. Yeah, I love that. I do agree with you. I think this movie holds up. I have to point out a few things that don't hold up well. Sure. It was the very beginning of, you know, tons of CGI. There oh, were yeah. there were movies around this time with amazing CGI. This was not one of them. When it goes into computer graphics, you can really tell, and it really stands out. 
But then again, even in 1989, $50 million budget doesn't get you great CGI effects. This is true. It didn't then, and it certainly doesn't now. So I can't overfault that. The biggest aspect that does not hold up is the fact that the cowl that Batman wears does not allow Michael Keaton to turn his head left or right. And when I saw that as a kid, that did not bother me at all. I didn't even notice that Batman couldn't turn his head. As an adult watching it, having not seen the movie for decades, I was really stunned about how I'm like, nobody moves that way. His Wait, he's in a fight. He should look left. There's a bad guy to his left, and he turns his entire body. That's not how you turn your body. I'm, I'm not a fighter, and I know that that's not how you fight. And in like intimate scenes with Vicky Vale in the like Batmobile romantic car ride, he just like moves his eyes and doesn't move at all his body. And it's a very like it affects his performance so much that it's amazing that nobody uh, saw that and was like, we have to redesign the bat suit. I think, you know what, we didn't dive too much into the making of it, but I think they were aware of it. And it's one of the reasons there's such little Batman in this movie. Yeah. Batman, you get a ton, a ton of Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton. You get a ton of Jack Napier and Joker, but very little Batman. Well, and I made this joke while you were while you were giving the recap, like Bruce Wayne is Batman. But like, honestly, while I was watching this movie, I was like, if I was really thick and I didn't already know, I was going in totally blind. If I didn't already know that Batman and Bruce Wayne were the same person, the movie doesn't really give it away until really far in because there's so little Batman and so much Bruce Wayne. So I might be sitting there like, why is there so much about this awkward billionaire? Where's the title character? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. The movie does take it as a given. You know Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same. And I do think you have to have your head under a deep rock. This is true. That has... Uh, building on top of it to not know that Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same person. However, if you are that person, this is not an origin story. Right. This is not about the origin of Batman, how Batman became Batman. This starts its hero in the middle of their heroic journey. It starts with Batman, a full on criminal hunter who stalks criminals at night. It does not tell you how they became Batman. It does not tell you. It doesn't tell you till the very like, like end of the second act, beginning of the third act, what even happened to Bruce Wayne that made him want to be Batman. You see none of his process converting to it. It takes it as a given. There's this thing in Gotham called Batman and it's merciless and it's out there hunting the criminals. I love that. Uh, From the first few frames of this movie, uh, the bat or Batman begins as a kind of urban legend or boogeyman among the criminals of the streets of Gotham. You see the muggers talking about him saying, uh, oh, they say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. There's all this legend that surrounds the figure of Batman. He's called the Bat, as though they think there is a supernatural figure, a sort of uh, Dracula that walks among them at night that is used as a cautionary tale to warn criminals about uh, changing their ways. It's a really interesting sort of mist that hangs over the the front half of this movie. Yeah, one of the things I think holds up the best in a very Tim Burton, Burtian way, pardon me, most of the superhero media that we consume is grounded in some semblance of realism. Right. 
And some semblance of this is like our world, but our world with superheroes in it. Even when the superhero genre goes to places like Asgard, it has to be juxtaposed against astrophysicists who can explain what Asgard is so we can understand it. Or stand in for an audience surrogate and be like, this is abnormal based on my understanding of reality. What I love about this in terms of the world building here is Gotham is its own contained universe. It's alive. It is not our universe. People don't dress the way people dressed in 1989. They didn't make buildings in this the way buildings are made. It is completely unique. It's own both aesthetic and functional universe with its own rules, its own sort of uh, vibe and feel to it. And its own status quo. That has not tried in any way, shape, or form to be realistic, but also is not in any way, shape, or form trying to overly camp and dumb it down. It highlights all of its non-realism in a way that doesn't make us feel like I'm in Asgard, for example. I know I'm in this Gotham city. Gotham feels like a real place, but it's also this magical, weird, dark place. And I love the way that it has this aesthetic that we just don't see too often, in particular in superhero movies anymore. Yeah, and that's certainly a shift that has happened more recently, but it's taken over the genre and it's taken over uh, sort of the the cinema space to such an extent that we almost don't remember movies like Batman in 1989. Um, It's interesting that this is also a pre-9-11 Batman. So what we're so familiar with today with DC and Marvel and the, the output that they have Uh, is that Batman and the Joker are these post-war on terror figures. Uh, The Joker, as we recognize him in the Heath Ledger portrayal, is very much a terrorist and is very much made in the image of how much the world changed on September 11th, 2001. And the sort of political implications of everything that those characters do is in conversation with how much the world changed then. And this... Batman is still a a complex figure. It's still a complex landscape. It's still engaging with important and uh, difficult issues around crime and justice, but it is still uh, in what today feels like a distant past. It feels like a period piece in more ways than one. Funny you should mention themes such as justice. Justice and Batman? As it happens... I would really like to discuss this concept of justice. After all, Batman the in the comic and, uh, and depending on the cinematic universe is involved with a society called the Justice League. And I really want to hone in on the philosophy of justice, in particular how it's articulated through this film. And ask a question, two questions. Is Batman just? And if so, what type of justice is? are we seeing from Batman? And I think the second question, what type of justice we're seeing from Batman, will be easier to answer than the first, is he just? But hopefully they will inform each other. So let's first talk about some basics of theories around, in particular, criminal justice. There is someone, they have committed a crime, you are a society, what do you do? There are three fundamental philosophies or approaches to criminal justice that exist. And obviously there are more and these do blend, but in the simplest terms, first there is retribution where if I commit a crime, the way for there to be justice after that crime is for me to be punished because of that crime. And the punishment must be proportional to the crime itself. It can't be disproportional. 
So think of this, uh, the Batman is comfortable, um, you know, setting up the conditions for the Joker to die at the end of the movie by tying his leg to a gargoyle so he can't escape versus the mugger in the first one where the, one of them gets kicked, the other one gets scared. They're fundamentally not as punished as hard. Joker's crimes are more severe. His punishment must be more severe, hence he dies. The mugger's punishment is less severe. Their crime was less bad, though a violent crime. They just need to be scared and roughed up a little bit. That makes sense. Retribution, right? The second one is going to be called uh, deterrence. Now, this is where the punishment must be more severe than the crime. In fact, it must be so severe, it deters people from wanting to do the crime. Think of King Joffrey or Tywin Lannister. You commit a crime, heads on pikes, Anybody that disobeys us at any time, heads are going to be put on pikes. So the next time you think, should I disobey Tywin Lannister? You're like, no, I can't. He'll put my head on the pike. So punishments must be worse than the crime to deter you from ever trying to do said crime. And then lastly, there is a rehabilitation. The idea is like, hey, you committed a crime. You committed a crime for a large list of complex reasons and you can unlearn the criminal behavior so that you can return to society and be a productive person. Now, people that study criminal justice will often say the best criminal justice systems have a little bit of all, right? They do a little bit of punishment, maybe some deterrence where it's like a really bad crime. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to re rehabilitate people and get them out of prison so they can rejoin society. What type of justice do we see from Batman here in this movie? Is he more in retribution? Is he more in deterrence? Or is he more in rehabilitation? And I would argue he practices retribution. I'm going to say for a few varieties, for a few uh, key reasons. Think of the first scene when the two muggers, they end up robbing the family. Batman is witnessing this happen. He doesn't prevent them from robbing. He has the power to prevent them from mugging the family, but he waits until they do it. Now that they have done it, now that they have passed the gulf from not criminal to criminal, now he has to punish them. And that punishment is going to be a combination of both physical and psychological torture. He kicks one in the chest. He roughs another one up. He scares the living lights out of them. And he says, hey, I'm going to throw in a little bit of deterrence here. Tell everybody you know about me, right? And that way, maybe I can deter a few people. But ultimately, they committed the crime. I'm going to punish them and make sure they get roughed up and then they go to jail and serve their sentence. Um, we see this a few times. We see Joker murder, you know, tons of people in a museum, presumably murder, maybe knockout. I don't know. Destroy all the artwork he is uh, presumably watching all of this happens and waits till Joker gets to the point where he almost assaults Vicky Vale. Then he, you know, jumps in and stops. And at this point, then he punishes them. In one instance, I'd say he diverts from letting a crime happen when the crime happens, then beating up the criminals. It, I would say the one time he doesn't do that is when he blows up Axis Chemicals, in which he kind of goes on an offensive. At this point, it's more like all-out war than criminal justice. Right. It's more now it's Batman versus the Joker. But he still allows the Joker to gas all of the Gothamites at the 200th anniversary when he's dumping cash before he goes and takes the balloons. So I think it's ingrained the crime must happen for Batman to act. 
Once the crime happens, Batman's job is to punish the criminals. In fact, I think this meets his psychological profile. Having watched his parents die at the hands of criminals, there's a part of him that wants criminals to pay, hence he must go fight them. Right? So I think it's more about retribution than anything else. That's the style of justice, pardon me, criminal justice we see from Batman. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's totally apt, and that fits in with the vigilante sort of profile that he has made for himself uh, as a character throughout his sort of run from the comics to cinema and beyond. Um, there are tons of, uh, of iterations of this throughout uh, adaptations of Batman, but in this particular movie, in the 1989 Batman, uh, voice is given to the concern about Batman's particular brand of justice and whether he is at all separate from the kind of things that criminals are doing in the first uh, in the first place. Vicki Vale is having a conversation with Bruce saying, a lot of people think you're as dangerous as the Joker. And Batman says he's psychotic. And Vicky says, some people say the same thing about you. Uh, the retributive justice that he is doling out is this very fine line because he has taken this into his own hands, because he works loosely with law enforcement and hits the streets on his own. It's natural that the people of Gotham start to question his sanity, question his motives. Uh, once you take that out of the framework, it's a really complicated thing for this person to be doing. Yeah. And you, you mentioned his relationship to law enforcement. This movie Law enforcement doesn't even believe he exists. Then when they do, they deny that he exists. And he is operating completely outside of law enforcement in this. It's oh, not yeah, until the right. end yeah. where he has a bat signal where they finally kind of integrate Batman into this loose sort of affiliation between Batman and the commissioner Gordon. And there it's like considered uh, it's considered progress for law enforcement to include this kind of justice because uh, heretofore, Gotham has just been basically bought off by the crime bosses. So at least they're allowing a form of criminal justice to sort of take center stage rather than just, uh, you know, being under the thumb of the mafia, essentially. So where does the idea of retribution philosophically come from as an idea? And it's fucking ancient. The Ooh. very first meditations, writings, and laws around retribution come from the ancient world, primarily from two sources. One would be Hammurabi's law code, and then the other would be um, the law codes of Moses and the ancient Israelites. And both teach a similar sort of retributive form of justice. And they both have a similar phrase that can be translated, mistranslated, but roughly it is akin to an eye for an eye. Now, we often talk about this as contemporary, modern, or postmoderns as a brutal form of justice, but it's important to note that an eye for an eye was very progressive in its time. And the idea being is that a crime and a punishment, they must have a harmonious balance. One, the justice must be dispassionate. You cannot be doing it for personal reasons. The punisher and the one dolling out the punishment can't be getting personal satisfaction out of it and that it must meet the crime. Eye for an eye, though sounding harsh, was moderate for its time period. What do I mean by that? Let's say we are both ancient Israelites, Laurel and I. We are both in different clans and Laurel steals my goat. Then I go. That sounds like me. 
Then I go and I kill her goat. Then she goes and she kills my brother-in-law. Then I go and I kill her brother-in-law and her sister-in-law. Then she goes and she kills both of my parents and my parents-in-law. Then I get everyone I know and I kill everyone in her clan. Now, this is a gross simplification, but that was the type of justice that existed in the ancient world pre-Mosaic and Hammurabi law codes. The idea being, you stole my goat. I can't just go kill you for your goat. Because what would happen when people would dull out to their own personal style of retribution and vengeance and passionate form of justice, you would steal my goat. I'd be so mad that I would kill your goat. And it would escalate to the point where then people were killing each other. There needed to be a system to say, okay, you stole a goat. That is this bad. Hence, your punishment should be you give Derek a goat. That is it. That's what balances it out. You lost a goat. You now gain a goat of hers. She has to give you one of her goats for this crime. You can't just go killing her goats. That would be unbalancing the justice. That would tip things to the scales of being from just to unjust. And it's important to remember that retribution is about creating a harmonic harm, a harmony, a sort of moral balance between the weight of the crime versus the weight of the punishment. One cannot exceed the other. Right? Makes sense? Yeah. And by, very, by its very nature, that requires uh, a lack of emotion. That requires that dispassionate attitude. And if we understand, if I'm right on my reading, that Batman is trying to enact a retributive form of justice in Gotham City through his vigilante acts, and that is how he's trying to achieve justice, is he just? Would you like to take a stab at answering that first? I obviously have a well-thought-out opinion on it. Oh, um, I might need a minute to think about it because I do think that every adaptation of Batman asks this question in a way. And I think this Batman uh, is very different uh, than some others. But I want to think about that question for a little bit. So why don't you take it? If we accept that retributive, retributive, pardon me, justice is actually justice. And we accept that Batman is trying to practice that form of justice. So if we take those two things as true and then ask, is Batman just? The answer has to be no, he is not just. In fact, he is incredibly unjust. And the reasons for that is one, his form of justice is not dispassionate. And I think that's the most important aspect to it and that he is personally motivated to go out and do these acts. In fact, there's an entire apparatus that exists that as a billionaire, he has the resources to help that could dispassionately go out there and punish criminals. He could fund the DA. He could fund the police. He could uh, use his influence to, and his money as influence to outroot corruption, but yet he decides to not do any of that. He goes out and he beats up the criminals himself the obvious answer to that is because he enjoys it, right? There's no other reason you do that unless you want to do that, which on some level, down deep in his subconscious, it is pleasurable. Hence, it can't be dispassionate. Or it's in the pursuit of some imaginary satisfaction that he hopes will arrive 
when he finally avenges his parents, right? There's this deep-rooted trauma that cannot be satiated within him. And then lastly, plenty of the anonymous Joker goons in this movie, Batman straight up kills. And though they're criminals, and though they were working for the Joker, we as audience members have not seen many of them commit a crime so bad that the only way to tip the scales so that it's just is to end their life. You could argue with Joker in the one case for capital punishment. Yeah, but Joker's probably that one case. But if we understand that Batman is trying to create harmony by punishing criminals commensurate to their crimes, he overdoes it a ton. We were talking about the scene where Batman goes and blows up access chemicals, and we were joking around like, Man, really sucks if you had the late shift as the janitor that night. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or you're the rent-a-cop who does security at night. Yep. Who just sits there and watches a ball game and makes sure no one breaks down the gate. And then in comes Batman with a machine gun laden Batmobile and blows the whole building up. You know, there are definitely some collateral damage in there that, yeah, at that point, maybe it's all out warfare. But at that point in time, that's not just from the standard of retributive retributive justice. So I think there's an element of Batman going a bridge too far. Batman being fundamentally unjust in this movie. Yeah, I think that is very, very well put. I really appreciate that. You know, there's a quote from Tim Burton while he was making this movie. He says, quote, the whole film and mythology of the character is a complete duel of the freaks. It's a fight between two disturbed people, end quote. So right here he's saying, like, I know that the Joker is a terrifying, deranged, evil character, evil villain, but he's up against this hero that we all put up as just and heroic, who is also deeply disturbed and pathological. And there is an importance to recognizing that trauma of Batman and how we can't call all of his deeds heroic. We have to acknowledge that there is a deep level of humanity to him uh, that means he makes mistakes and he has flaws and he is not always living up to this heroic ideal. Yeah, two points I'd like to add to that that I think are, are I think you're totally hitting hitting a home run here. One, Batman's more like the flawed gunslinger cowboy in this than he is the true, like, Superman, flawless hero, Captain America, Tony Stark, even, that are that are still flawed. Yeah, yeah. He's more like that hero that has no problem killing someone if he has to, but doesn't want to kill someone unless they're pushed to no other level. He's more like a unjust, um, you know, he's more like that rough outlaw who's been unjust his whole life, who finally decides that they're going to fight for the side of the Going to go straight, yeah. Two, another piece of evidence of why there is something fundamentally unjust about this Batman, which I don't say as a knock, and I don't say to tear the character down. Rather, I say it as a way that they've complicated the Batman narrative and made it more interesting in the cyclical relationship between violence, creator, and created. And this movie does something that's very unique in the Batman Joker paradigm in that it sets up a world in which we first see Batman accidentally create the Joker only to learn 
that young Jack Napier pre-Joker accidentally created the Batman. Yeah. And in this, there's a meditation about violence and that violence will beget more violence. Because there was a young sociopath named Jack Napier and because uh, he went into a simple mugging that went wrong, he traumatized a young rich kid so deeply that that young rich kid grew up to beat up that same Jack Napier, unknowing that was the Jack Napier that killed his parents, dropped him in Nevada's chemicals, who emerges as the Joker, only to become that same person's arch-fucking-nemesis. And there is this, like, this, this beautiful poetry in how it changes that relationship, which is very unique in the Batman-Joker paradigm, to reflect on the idea that these violent delights will have violent ends. Oh, man, drop the mic, but they're on stands. That's wonderful. And I, I do, I love that kind of feedback loop that this movie creates. Although Joker killing Batman's parents isn't necessarily something that most people will consider canonical, I think as a standalone piece of cinema... That is really satisfying and really delivers for us in the creation of both of these characters. I want to take this and move into a little bit of conversation around this movie's presentation of the Joker, because I think it's really important. I think we're all talking about Joker right now. I think there have been so many iterations of him since uh, Jack Nicholson's portrayal that I think uh, Jack deserves a little bit of attention for the version of the Joker that he created here, along with Tim Burton. Um, one of the things that I love most about this presentation of the Joker is how uh, openly and clearly it embraces how performative and theatrical the clown prince of crime really is. It openly creates a feeling of clown, a feeling of performance, a feeling of always putting on a play. And Jack Nicholson's Joker says many times that he is an artist. He's a homicidal artist. He's part of the avant-garde. He has this feeling of uh, a similarity to a lot of like totally screwed up serial killers that we think about in sort of the uh, popular consciousness around uh, psychopathy and sociopathy. Um, but I think this is the cinematic presentation of the Joker that best understands what it means to be a clown. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about that. Very, very cool. You know, I, I find that Jack Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker when I first saw the movie, I thought it was jaw-dropping, and I think it still is today. I do think it's one of the most iconic villain performances of all time. So let's get into it. I can't wait to talk about it. So clown is a term that when you hear, you probably think of Pennywise, or you think of circus clowns. You think of something that is uh, either very creepy or is very um, slapstick and comedic and something that you associate with one very particular uh, sphere of life. Uh, but clown is a fairly old art form with roots back to, believe it or not, Greek drama. Uh, there were these sort of rustic peasant character archetypes in Greek drama. Um, but the clown as we know it today pretty much emerges out of the Italian Renaissance and later through Commedia dell'arte, which we talked about at length with our Sopranos episode of all things. 
Um, Commedia dell'arte is also responsible for the creation of a stock character named Arlecchino uh, or Harlequin. And that, of course, becomes the foundation for Harley Quinn. Um, but clowns, as we think about them today, emerge out of that sort of tradition and have all of these sort of performative rites and rituals that they're associated with, whether those are mime, which we see acted out through Joker and his troupe uh, at the uh, sort of assembly in this movie. Uh, we'll see clowns associated with carnivals. We'll see clowns associated with parade and pageantry, something else that we see here in this movie, as well as the sort of circus clowns that we see and the Pagliacci sad clown that sometimes Joker will put on, uh, saying that his smile hides the tears underneath as he's trying to woo Vicky Vale. Yeah, I really love where you're going with this because we think of the Joker primarily these days in the Heath Ledger in sense. That wasn't always the case. But the Heath Ledger Joker proposes himself as the philosophical opposite of Batman, trying to win a debate with Batman in the hopes that Batman will turn to Joker's side and see that morality, societal functions, societal institutions and organizations, that they're all just a bad joke to dress up the fact that in, in deep underneath us, we're all Joker's. This Joker is not defining his relationship with Batman in a philosophical antagonism. Right. He's not doing that. It's purely clownery. Yeah, he's trolling Batman. He's trolling Gotham. He's totally doing it because it's fun for him. Yeah. And that's his only motivation. His biggest sense of, I think, anger that we see at Batman isn't that Batman dropped him into a vat of chemicals. He first looks at the paper after he kills boss Carl Grissom and he's just like, Bat terrorizes? Where do they get a load of me? Thinking like, I'm going to up the the ante of the, the bad press that Batman's getting. He's annoyed that Batman's getting his press. And then he gets mad that Batman steals the press at the museum incident. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, he has a media battle where he just, you know, decides to start his like reign of terror through a commercial where he's just like, you know what? They can't let Batman get away with this. It's going to be about me, right? I want it to be about me. And then at the end at the festival, he's just like, hey, me versus Batman. Here I am. And it's more about this media like battle of this like ins insane narcissism that exists at the center of this clown. And it, and you're right. He wants to be the King gangster because he wants to be right. He wants to take on Batman because he wants the press. He wants Vicky Vale because she wants the trophy. wife. she's yeah. beautiful and takes great photos and can take photos of the things that he does. And he's just this like pure being of instinct. He's just this pure being of just, raw chaotic energy and he's just like clown and id meet somewhere in the middle and then decide to go on a crime spree yeah go on a tear i think that's that's a great way of putting it and this joker feels uh you know everything is a performance but he also feels more human than uh other iterations of the joker that feel more like this kind of uh you know agent of chaos or a force of nature 
that are terrifying because they don't feel like they respond the way normal humans do. And this one has some very human impulses. He is sexual. He's not this sexless sort of creature. He uh, desires things that uh, most human beings desire. He just also desires attention and praise for his performance above all of that. So I think that's a really interesting uh, presentation. Yeah, and there's another meditation about his performance that's worth asking, is that, you know, to what extent does the artist get to live at different roles than the non-artist? Right. And to the Joker who views himself as the the agent of the avant-garde, he is a fully-fledged homicidal artist. He makes art till people die. He's like, that specialness gives me this ability to live beyond the rules. Like when he's giving the money away, he's just like, well, to you, the little people, time to remove you from your worthless lives. You know, when his uh, second-in-command angers him because he doesn't know that Batman has a bat plane, which how does anyone know? No one knows. Of course not. He just murders him right then and there. Yeah. To Joker, he sets himself apart from the common people because he views himself as this avant-garde artist. He is the clown incarnate. He's the clown trickster energy made manifest. And the difference between him and Batman is that Batman does only use his power to mitigate the Batman form of justice, though we argued imperfect and flawed that form of justice. That form of justice, pardon me, is Batman only uses it to serve as little self as he can, even though part of that is still for himself. The Joker, it's 99.99999% about his gratification and that little 0.0001% about beating Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time with the climax of the movie because I think uh, the setting and the imagery also give us a little bit of insight into the Joker and into Batman and this whole adaptation. Um, and that's because it takes place in the bell tower of a Gothic cathedral. So I, I know you can't believe it, but I'm going to talk a little bit about 19th century literature here and point out some of the parallels that this movie has to The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo uh, from the year 1831. Uh, there's a couple of sort of superficial uh, things that feel really similar between the two stories. Uh, again, like I said, the final act of Batman takes place in the bell tower of a Gothic cathedral. Uh, same thing happens in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Also, the titular character of Hunchback is a deformed character, Quasimodo, uh, he his name literally means half formed or not fully formed. I think the Joker somewhat parallels this in a way after he falls into the vat of toxic chemicals and comes out deformed, and this uh, forms the basis of his villainy. Some other parallels that I notice with the Hunchback of Notre Dame: uh, there is a major scene that takes place at what's known as the Festival of Fools, which is sort of like a twelfth night celebration from the Middle Ages that was a religious celebration full of pageantry and clowning uh, that was based around the idea of becoming a fool for Christ. And Quasimodo in the novel uh, leaves Notre Dame for one of the first times in the book and is crowned the Pope of Fools when everybody sees how hideous he is and how perfectly he encapsulates this sort of uh, topsy-turvy ideal. And 
Pope of Fools doesn't feel too dissimilar to Clown Prince, does it? Yeah. And even there's a moment uh, before the parade takes place in Batman where the Joker says, commence au festival, one of the many points where he speaks French in this movie, sort of alluding to Victor Hugo. And then the final, uh, the final scene of Hunchback, or the climax of Hunchback, takes place when Quasimodo brings Esmeralda, the, uh, the woman that he loves, into Notre Dame and declares sanctuary so that she can be hid there and be safe. And the final climax of Batman takes place with the Joker bringing Vicky Vale up into the bell tower. And it's this sort of perverse mirror of what happens in Hunchback. Um, I think what's really interesting about this is that Quasimodo is somewhat of a heroic character in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, There's this subversive thing going on where his hideous exterior masks a pretty decent heart. And... That feels like a you know this classic don't judge a book by its cover idea, but it was pretty new when Victor Hugo was doing it. And uh, in Batman, we get this return to a sort of classical, uh, you know, ancient Greek idea that deformity was indicative of sin, or sin and deformity lived side by side. The villain looks as bad as he is or is as bad as he looks it's like a fairy tale and instead of the you know grotesque hero bringing the uh the woman who needs to be rescued up to the bell tower it's the sick twisted villain with a deformed face uh stealing away with the heroine up to the bell tower so it's this interesting mirror i also love to point out that uh a few years ago tim burton was trying to get an adaptation of Hunchback of the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame through the development pipeline with Josh Brolin as the uh, as Quasimodo. So we know that he has some love for this story, and I think that really infuses the sort of gothic tale of Batman. I love that. You know, another you know reflection I had watching this movie is how that they're in the center of Gotham City, and then they're going to take Vicky Vale and Joker going to escape at the top of Gotham Cathedral and Gotham Gotham Cathedral is a fucking ruin, right? It is like, it has cobwebs and birds in it. It's like this city is so unholy that nobody even goes to church to pray anymore. That it's just now that the, the church in the center of the city is a ruin, but it's another perversion yeah. of the Notre Dame, yeah. which you know, is the Notre fucking Dom. It's artwork in the form of a building, you know? like Yeah, and it's another way that the Joker, uh, you know, makes profane the sacred, uh, where the Joker takes the sacred and makes it profane. Uh, and that is part of the Joker's entire ethos in this movie, is tied up with performative transgression. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just crazy to me. And I'm like, wait a minute. How is Gotham Cathedral a fucking ruin? I know. This is America. (laughs) There are no ruined churches. It's not that old. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I I do think the symbol is clear that nobody goes to church. There is no church in Gotham that's functional. Hence, it's a ruin. And I do think it is the inverse of the Notre Dame. I think you're right on the money there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, really cool stuff. You know, that is not a thing 
I think if I didn't know you, I would ever have extrapolated out of Tim Burton's Batman is its connection to the inverse, the shadow form of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Well, and part of, uh, you know, uncovering those parallels is asking why. Why would uh, a Batman movie, this hero who's usually a pretty subversive comic book character, adhere to such a classical ideal of what villains look like? And I think a huge part of this comes back to expressionism and how deeply expressionistic the Batman landscape is. You know, this is a world where your inner life, where Batman's inner life especially, manifests on the streets of Gotham. And I think this may be the best uh, iteration of Batman for expressing that. Can I ask you a few follow-up questions? Yeah, please do. When you call Batman a subversive hero, what do you mean by that term? I mean that uh, Batman and the Batman mythology tend to subvert the... Uh, sort of early superhero ideals of like Superman and Captain America types, or you know the the things that we hold up as superheroic. Batman and his comics and his movies are usually engaged in showing us the darker side or the uh, less desirable side of. That's what I mean by that. Right, because Batman is almost as crazy as the Joker, just one yeah. hair less. Yeah. Rather than Superman, who's nowhere near as crazy as Lex Luthor and never would be. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. When you say, when you talked about the sort of classical return to classicism and less subversion in the villains, could you please kind of pin that down a little for me too? Is that okay? Yeah. Well, I think in Batman's villains, more than almost any other superhero set of villains, we have a pattern of abnormal uh, physicality, physical abnormalities and uh, evil paralleling one another. So you think of the Joker especially, but you're also going to think of Bane, of Two-Face, of the Penguin, of so many of Batman's villains whose, uh, whose evil is either brought on by a physical abnormality or whose physical abnormalities are a manifestation of their evil. Mm. And that feels um, that feels very old. That feels very obvious um, and not subversive. Right. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, especially the pagan world, the idea yeah. of the pagan gods as the like supreme embodiment of human physical beauty that all humans are are there to replicate, that if you didn't actually replicate that that beauty in your body, it's because one of those gods was not with you. You know, so if you were a woman who went from looking like Athena but then ended up looking less desirable, it would be because Athena has left you and so hence you're not as desirable. Hence, the gods aren't with you. Hence, you're probably a bad person. Which we now know is completely ridiculous and, and untrue. In particular, if you're born with a physical deformity, right. is there no other evidence if you're an ancient you know, Greek and Roman pagan that the gods did not bless you? Well, look at the way you came out. They have, Obviously, if the gods blessed you, you wouldn't come out with that physical deformity. This echoes into the Middle Ages, in which that that sort of mentality continues that physical beauty equals 
also a blessing from the divine. And hence you would be then more morally a good person if you outwardly looked beautiful. Now we now know that one, your physical beauty, whether you have a birth defect or not, the body changes over time. None of these things are linked to any divine spark or blessing or curse. Um, So we don't hold to those same standards, but for thousands of years that was true and you're it's interesting for you to call out that in batman there are a handful of some of the most iconic villains that have some outward physical disability or deformity pardon me not disability or suffer some sort of physical change killer croc doesn't look like a human right yeah you know then there is uh you mentioned penguin who is named after an animal because the appearances of an animal the Joker is permanently embedded with clown face. And the list does go on and on with so many of these villains. And it's an interesting um, examination of the Batman villain canon. I wonder if now having had this discussion, do you think there's an element of using that more ancient trope that's problematic with Batman? Or do you think it's, it's okay? Do you think it's cool? Like, where would you land on it? I mean, that's a really big question, and I think this is something that we could talk about for hours, probably. Um, But for me, uh, it's always something that has felt a little bit like punching down uh, at, at people who look different within the Batman canon. I think that the strength of Batman's villains usually comes across in the philosophical battles between Batman and that particular villain. Uh, When the physical abnormalities are brought in as uh, a major uh, explainer of why they are so evil, that feels less uh, powerful for me, and that feels less uh, moral for me. So it's not necessarily that the Penguin is bad because the Penguin looks as a bad character and problematic because they look like a Penguin, it's when they write the penguin, the only reason you're a bad guy is because you look like a penguin. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, All right. that's it. And so it really depends on how it's written, but it is an interesting relationship, one worth at least thinking about and meditating on because you know, one of the best aspects of Batman, one of the reasons I think Batman is so powerful and so popular, and we can have so many great Batman narratives, is because of such interesting and complex villains that all set their machinations against Batman. Yeah. And yeah, I think absolutely. I think that's one of the like reasons of the secret sauce for Batman's huge success is that I mean, one of the reasons 1989 Batman was a global phenomenon was because everybody was like you have to see Jack Nicholson's Joker. Yeah. You have to see it. Summarily, one of the reasons that The Dark Knight is considered one of the best Batman movies ever was because everyone's like, you have to see Heath Ledger's Joker. You have to see Heath Ledger's Joker. Literally a generation later, it's the, the generation later, it's the same phenomenon. The, the villain is so good, you have to see this movie to see this villain. So I do think it's worth exploring the villains in relation to Joker, or in relation to Batman, pardon me. Yeah, absolutely. Final thoughts? Uh, this has been a really engaging and interesting discussion. There is so, so much to say about Batman. We confined this to one movie, but how many adaptations of Batman have there been? Uh, if there is something that you want to hear us 
uh, address about Batman or about Joker or about his villains and their relationships, uh, please let us know. Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We would love nothing more than to jump into another Batman episode. And that's all I have to say. My final thought, Vicki Vale in this movie, kind of a stalker. Uh, yeah, she's a little needy. Yeah, she's a stalker. Straight up stalks <laughs> Bruce Wade. Uses oh. her like press credentials to dig into his past and like straight up stalks him and gets to and, and it's rewarded. She stalks him so hard she gets to know that Bruce Wade is Batman. Oh boy. That's a weird anti-feminist message that it's telling that maybe we should do a whole episode on Vicky Vale of that because I'll tell you what, that did not hold up well. No, it did not hold up great. Still love Kim Basinger. Still love the movie. And until next time, be kind. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs>